Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us today is CEO and registered principal at Share Power Responsible Investing, Richard Torgerson. Thank you for joining me, Rick. Well, thank you, Amy. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, for all of us at Share Power, we've really appreciated the interest and the caring and the support you and your team have given us since we joined Cambridge uh, now seven years ago. I'm very uh, enthusiastic about sharing your story and your wisdom with our listeners today. So let's jump right in. I like to start every podcast in the same way by asking our guests, take us through your journey. How did you start your career in financial services? And what was it that made you pursue a career in our business? Well, uh, financial services, um, that wasn't my trajectory at all at first. Uh, I was a poli-sci major at Johns Hopkins. Uh, my first job out of college was as a community organizer for a housing and civil rights organization called Baltimore Neighborhoods. And we organized tenants' rights groups around the Baltimore area and fought race-based discrimination and, and housing issues uh, uh, throughout. And in uh, 1984, we came in contact with tenants concerned that they would be forced out of their homes by a landlord intent on renovating the complex and raising rents beyond what they could afford. We found out that the landlord had sought county government funding for the renovations through the county's issuance of a low interest industrial revenue bond. We helped the tenants form a tenants association to negotiate with the landlord and with county officials. And long story short, the group was able to write rules for grandfathered rent levels and maintenance and housing codes right in the offering documents for the municipal bond. And as a result, everyone came away happy. The landlord obtained his low cost funding. The tenants were safe in their homes, uh, their upgraded homes. And the planners saw major upgrades to the neighborhood. And, uh, and this kind of blew me away. It taught me the power of finance uh, to change the world and to do well for people. And I was, I was fascinated. And in 1985, I made the switch. And I joined Dean Witter's training program to become a stockbroker. So that was a, you know, a, a bit of a jump from going to a low-income tenant organizer to being a stockbroker. It was very, uh, very fun, and it was a good move on my part. Because Dean Witter had a lot of characteristics that uh, gave me really valuable experience in this business. First off, Dean Witter had desks in all the various Sears stores across the country as part of the Sears Financial Network. And so we all took turns manning the desks out in the Sears stores. You know, my desk was right right in front of the tire department. <laughs> and here I was able to, to meet and work with all kinds of people that would never want to set foot in a, in a stockbroker's office. And it showed me that my role as a financial advisor was not so much to sell investments that my company wanted me to sell, but instead my role was to serve clients as a guide, helping them navigate a what well, to them and to me was a complex and a scary financial world. Secondly, my branch manager had tapped me to uh, be uh, what he called a syndicate coordinator for the Baltimore area offices. 
And that's a fancy term that required me to actually sit down and read all those uh, prospectuses of initial public offerings that, uh, that Dean Witter was involved in. And then to, uh, to report back to my fellow stockbrokers and give them some guidance as to which deals were worthwhile and which deals to avoid. And in this role, I noticed a couple of patterns. The first is that prospectuses that are written for public investments had to contain enough information to be able to make a reasonable investment decision. And I thought this was pretty cool. This was living proof of the protections put in place by FDR and the New Deal to, to try to prevent shysters from conning the investment public. I thought this was great. The second pattern is that while all of that required information made prospectuses pretty thick in every sense of the word, there are some that were thicker still. And the pattern was that the thicker the prospectus, the less likely the investment described would be attracted. And this is because prospectuses are written by lawyers and they're paid by the hour. And uh, words are there for a reason. And the more disclaimers, disclosures, mea culpas, and, and, and whereases and wherefores you find in a prospectus, uh, the more likely that particular investment has something under the hood that uh, you know, is, is, is suspect. So that gave rise to a kind of a tongue-in-cheek rule that I've had ever since that if, if, anything, if anybody comes to you with a prospectus more than an inch thick, uh, well, run. <laughs> We're still dealing with the same challenges 40 plus years <laughs> right. later, aren't we? <laughs> right. Now, um, also Dean Witter, I was exposed to the notion of socially responsible investing. This was in the mid eighties. And in the mid eighties, the South African divestment campaign was going uh, strong, protesting the apartheid system uh, that held sway in, in South Africa. A number of my clients wanted portfolios that divested of companies doing business in South Africa. And so my challenge was to be able to meet their request and fashion portfolios that excluded all these uh, companies, but still left with financially sound portfolios that were diversified enough. So I learned how to do this um, socially responsible in investing and uh, began giving seminars on social investing. Uh, first one was 1987. So I've actually been sounding this, uh, uh, this platform for 30. Uh, I'm a financial advisor, arithmetic. Let's see if I can do this, 34 years. And at the same time, I got uh, active in the local uh, Baltimore uh, divestment movement at all, uh, as well. I started, then started my own practice as an independent financial advisor in 93. And I've been in this side of the business ever since. So I've been at this now for, for 37 years. So was it 1993 when you went independent that you chose to call yourself something other than a stockbroker? Or how did that evolution work for you? Well, I was proud of being called a stockbroker uh, until... Um, uh, until my clients, you know, took me aside and said, hey, Rick, you, you really need to, uh, you know, change up a little bit. And uh, so I got the message and all of a sudden I became a financial advisor. I think many people did, probably right around the same time. Um, right. Some TV show or something started educating clients, <laughs> I think, or movie. So 
on your website, your bio states that Richard has been combining his financial acumen with lifelong commitment to social justice, specifically, since becoming a financial advisor. You just explained, I presume, a lot of that, but are, is there anything else about that particular statement that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, yes, one important point. I believe that financial services and social justice are intertwined without my having to blend anything. I'm a believer in a business style that's known as stakeholder management. That is, the way business decisions should be made is considering the interests of all of the constituents of a business, employees, customers, suppliers, communities at large, as well as shareholders. And this, this isn't some kind of experimental left-wing concept. It's basically how business was done uh, up until about the 80s. And uh, all, all you need to do uh, to see that is to take a look at one of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life. And most people listening to the podcast probably have seen this movie multiple times, especially at Christmas. And remember the scene where George Bailey, the good guy, was dressing down that evil banker, Henry Potter. He was defending making loans to the people, in his words, who did most of the working, paying, living, and dying in the town. Well, as good a definition of stakeholder management, you'll never find. And that's also a good definition of socially responsible investing. Because at its core, all it is is conducting business ethically and to treat others the way that you would be treated. And I find that to be a, a great navigational beacon for choosing investments for clients, but also a beacon for how we run our own business. So let's talk about that. What is your process? How do you find clients? How do you determine if they're going to be a good fit for working with your firm? And then what's the process you take them through? Well, uh, I think the, the very first thing is we listen to what clients have to say, what social responsibility means to them and their views of what's important to, to their own life. We listen to their, their concerns, their fears, their needs, their goals. In short, what they want their savings to accomplish for them and their family. And then we, you know, we evaluate their time horizon, uh, the risk tolerance and financial objectives that, uh, uh, that are laid out before us. And then we'll tailor a portfolio or program that fits their lives construct diversified portfolios. We use stocks, fixed income, mutual funds, physical trusts, cash, and we employ comprehensive social screening on, on proposed investments in all asset classes. Part of our evaluation is looking at mutual funds uh, that, that might be appropriate that are active in the shareholder advocacy movement, which is a valuable part of responsible investing because that's the part that communicates to companies how we want them to behave. Even the brokerage cash account, cash option we use, is screened to include only those banks we believe are good community citizens. Uh, of the banks that are available to us in the cash option and uh, in our brokerage accounts, we want to weed out the ones run by Henry Potter, and we want to focus on the ones run by the George Baileys of the world. Now, we do this all while employing strict due diligence on our own efforts, as well as Cambridge's, to make sure that we, we do not compromise on financial soundness in favor of, of chasing after social benefit. You've been using 
ESG or responsible investing strategies in your business for over 30 years, I believe, based on what you were just explaining. But in the marketplace, while there were others, you weren't alone. There are others that have been doing it for a long time. It's definitely picked up speed for a lot of reasons in, I'd say, the last 10 to 15 years. What are some of the factors driving that growth? And what are some of the tools? Um, if I remember correctly, we had a conversation about your screening process, which was, you know, you pretty much had to build it yourself back then um, and you figure a lot out on your own because the industry wasn't bringing a lot of tools to the table. But what's some of the innovation that you've seen in that space? This whole area has grown enormously, especially the last couple of years. When you look closer, though, and we've had this conversation before. Uh, when you look closer, it's a confusing mixture of names and labels. And no one seems to be able to define precisely. You've got ESG, SRI, green investing, impact investing, sustainable investing, and a dozen more labels. And this confusion is in the financial industry of trying to pin it down and, and, and call it for what it is. And I think it shows that for all of the math whizzes and quants in our business, we sure could use more English and history majors in our, in our industry. See, the thing is, socially responsible investing describes the process and action taken by investors to ensure their investment decisions are consistent with their values. ESG investments are products and services created by the financial industry that seek to use environmental, social, and governance measures, ESG, to help them make the portfolios for their products. See, SRI, socially responsible investing, is a verb describing actions taken by investors. ESG is a noun describing products created by the industry to market to investors. Two completely different concepts, and we've been trying to uh, use one label to encompass both concepts and just tripping all over ourselves every time we do. Why that's important to answer your question is that there are two reasons why uh, this whole area has, has shown explosive growth. On the socially responsible investing side, we go back to that notion of stakeholder management. Stakeholder management kind of gave way to a new philosophy of business somewhere in the 80s and 90s. And the new philosophy was called shareholder management, where the principal, if not sole purpose of a business is to deliver profits for shareholders and any other consideration detracted from that sole mission. And that includes wages, jobs, worker safety, uh, benefits of maintaining and improving quality of products and services, investments to protect the environment, port communities. And we've also seen concurrent with this a grotesque growth in the disparity of wealth and income between the major capital owners and the rest of us. And this pandemic, we learned some more that many companies that followed strict short-term profits at the exclusion of all else. Many companies had fragile infrastructures, low reserves, and non-existent stockpiles of necessary goods to see us through emergency. We've seen all these areas shortchanged for decades now, and there's been a growing sense among the public that something is seriously wrong and out of balance. And this growing awareness has seen repeated expression in the investment side, in socially responsible investment movements over the years, uh, South Africa, fossil fuels, fossil fuels and climate change, weapons contractors, mega banks, just to name a few. 
Meanwhile, the financial industry, through dozens of academic studies, are coming to the conclusion that paying attention to ESG factors in investment selection can also be productive and, and potentially profitable, which is the same realization that George Bailey had 73 years ago. So the combination of this long-term pent-up demand and the realization by the industry uh, that Henry Potter was wrong when he called all this sentimental hogwash has resulted in a huge influx of new mutual funds, uh, new investment products, new strategies to satisfy this pent-up demand. And, and we've seen that the explosive growth of the industry as a result. As with anything else, some of these efforts are more credible than others. And the charge of the ESG Advisory Council, of which I'm, I'm fortunate to be a, a part of, is to do our best to try to separate the wheat from the chaff on behalf of the Cambridge Advisory Committee. And that's what we try to do. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very fulfilling work to, to work with, uh, with all the other very smart people in the committee. Now, what all this means for the future is, is, the, best, uh, is the best point of all. Because I say it means that we're in the midst of a revolution to bring big business back to stakeholder management and away from shareholder capital. And the potential result of that is more widespread, sustainable prosperity and growth that benefits all stakeholders, including shareholders, our investing clients. And in that sense, you know, I, I would steal the words of Sir John Templeton, uh, the future looks absolutely glorious. Thank you for your contributions to our council. I know that the work there is very, very important, and our teams get a lot of value from hearing those of you that have an, an expertise in this area help us sort through priorities and set priorities as it relates to these topics. So what about the tools that are available and what the council is helping our employees here consider from an investment perspective? Have they changed significantly in the many, many years you've been doing this? Are we still on the early stages of that? Is there much more needed, almost like every other aspect of our business, to make this more efficient and educate people? There was a time when the research houses that catered to uh, this kind of research were, um, uh, were very good at, at investigating the, uh, the misbehaviors of companies. And so they would look in terms of you know, what a company's track record was for you know, environmental harm or fines paid for employee safe or labor concerns and, and, and things like that. That had given way to a professional class of research providers that are owned by some of the big uh, Wall Street institutions now that concentrated on reputation risk. That is, um, once it was discovered that ESG factors could be predictive in, in determining whether a, whether a company is, is likely to run into an adverse headline that would affect our stock, that focus looked at uh, how well a company was preparing themselves against those adverse headlines. And, uh, and that's a whole different research area and where, uh, where a company's declaration of a new policy in one issue or another uh, becomes important. And their past record of discrimination lawsuits or, or whatnot uh, become less important. It's been, uh, uh, recent research has shown that that approach that tries to be predictive of future uh, socially responsible behavior uh, is not very good at identifying the, the bad and the good actors out there in the marketplace. 
And so we're seeing a trend back towards the hard data of, uh, of the actual track record, the amount of emissions from the toxic release inventory, uh, you know, that kind of, of data. I think that will be very helpful to our listeners who have, you know, maybe not quite figured out how to build this efficiently into their practice. So thank you for sharing that. I know that you served for many years as president of Nuclear Free America or NFA. Tell us what that experience was like. Uh, maybe start by telling the listeners who aren't as familiar what NFA is and does. And then what are some of the things that you accomplished in your time in that role? Well, uh, Nuclear Free America grew out of the peace movement and the nuclear free zone movement of the of the early 80s. Uh, that was a move over 130 uh, cities and municipalities across the U.S. passed legislation declaring themselves nuclear free zones to disavow participation with the nuclear weapons uh, program. These laws required municipalities to avoid investing in or purchasing from nuclear weapons contractors. Now that raised an immediate question, who are the nuclear weapons contractors? So Nuclear Free America's job was to identify those companies involved in weapons and to distinguish them from other companies doing business with the Pentagon that in non-military products. Uh, our lists were used by these municipalities as well as by religious orders and socially responsible mutual funds and money managers who followed the same standards. And we know that we had an impact because we would get calls from company execs trying to get municipal contract, begging us to take them off their lists. And they'd ask us how, how they could get off the list. And, and we'd be able to drill down to the actual federal contract that violated uh, uh, the rules. Now, no company in the world will ever announce that they actually did a thing because pesky activists pressured them to do it. But I do note that from the beginning to the end of the program, a period of time that spanned about a decade and a half, by the end of the program, or my involvement in the program, there were only about half as many companies involved as nuclear weapons contractors as when we started. So we believe we made a difference. This kind of research and this experience led to other roles. I directed social research for a, a broker dealer as well as um, directed shareholder advocacy for, for the same group. And overall, I consider myself really fortunate to have this kind of experience because I've, I've, I've gained a perspective in all the different areas of social investing as an activist, as a data provider, and social research and screening, and shareholder act activism as president of a broker-dealer and an RIA firm, done investment banking, creating SRI products, and now, most importantly right now, as a financial advisor. And I think it's, it's given me a, a good grounding, a good three-dimensional uh, view of this business and of this uh, mission, helping our clients with their financial futures. It sounds like it. You've got a very deep level of knowledge around the issues that I'm sure have benefited your clients and others who have perhaps learned from you along the way. So thank you for sharing that with our listeners. That leads me to a, a question I like to ask, which is what's your greatest piece of advice for anyone considering a career in this industry? I think the greatest piece of advice that I could give at this point is um, never lose sight of the purpose of the career. 
this is not a technical profession. This is not a sales profession. This is not a money-making profession. This is a service profession. Uh, you work in service to your clients. You don't work for your broker dealer. You, you don't work for investment companies. You don't work for mutual funds that you might be using. Your first loyalty is to the well-being and interests of your clients. And Cambridge is, is the perfect place to apply that because uh, it's, it's in Cambridge's DNA from top to bottom that this is so. If you never forget that, this career can be more fulfilling than you could possibly imagine. I recently got a call from a longtime client who called me to thank me because she was able to write a tuition check for her daughter just starting college. And she could do that because we started an investment plan 18 years ago when she was born. And we've just been plodding along ever since. And now, now we're harvesting uh, that work. And you know, when you hear that, and, and when I see the pictures of, of, of her daughter on campus, I, it just doesn't get any better than that. That's just the most fulfilling thing in the whole world. And if you stick with this business, if you never lose sight of what your purpose is, you'll be able to enjoy that too. Perfect advice. I think that's one of the reasons often why people don't consider our business uh, as they're considering their career options because it's um, they're misled to believe for lots of reasons that this is about the money. It is about the profits. It is, it is a money business to your earlier point, not a service business. And I love when those of you that have built your life's career point that out and give specific examples like that, because you are making such a difference in a, in a lot of your clients' lives. So the other thing that keeps people from getting into our business, we find quite frequently, is that they think we're all workaholics and that we don't have a life outside of our jobs. So let's go ahead and bust that notion as well and share with our listeners your interests and hobbies outside of work. What do you do to unwind? Well, I had a little bit of an advanced warning on this question, and I thought that I might uh, just, just joke a little bit and say that I unwind looking at uh, the EPA's toxic release inventory database. But or reading I prospectuses. I think they picked up on that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, truth be told, in this pandemic era, um, you know, the answer is a little bit more difficult than it was a couple of years ago. But uh, one thing that, that I always turn to, uh, and I try to do this every day, is to deliberately uh, get up off the desk and, and do something outdoors, whether it's yard work, whether it's just taking a walk. You know, sometimes it's just standing, looking up at the stars, but, uh, but especially in this, in this quarantine era and these crazy times we're living in, it's so important to, to take in that fresh air. And the thing that rejuvenates me is doing just that, just standing outside, looking up, looking at the stars, listening to my own breathing, and just reminding myself that no matter what all the troubles we're going through, uh, we are all part of something much bigger than ourselves. And that cuts down all the problems of the day down to size. Well said. Richard, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. And in particular, for making it clear to our listeners that this is a noble profession and that somebody can really make a difference um, if they choose this as a career. And um, 
perfect example of Cambridge Stronger. So I'm glad you joined us to share your experiences and your story. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. We are Cambridge Stronger.